Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the October 7th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight, we hear a classic coming-out story. And revive a very special Gaytino report from Dan Guerrero about an LGBT mariachi band. But first... Let's spill some tea. The honest tea. A few different stories this week, and one is extremely, extremely important. Actually, they're all very important. But the one we want to lead off with today is something that's coming up on October 8th that every member of the LGBTQI community and our allies should be aware of. That is the October 8th Supreme Court hearing on whether you can be fired for being gay and trans. Michael Taylor Gray, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, that's coming up like tomorrow. Right. Yeah, right. When we're looking at this. Uh, uh, the, yeah, the Supreme Court has delivered a remarkable series of victory to the gay rights movement over the last two decades. And keep in mind that this is covering both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama presidencies that have expanded our rights. But what's coming up on the 8th has to do with deciding whether gays and transgender people, because that's how they're wording it. Those are the two members within our expanding uh, community that they recognize at this point. Right. And right. it's three different cases, correct? That is correct. Three different cases of workers suing their employers over being fired, either for being uh, for gay uh, or transgender. Right. And I know Amy Stevens was pretty clear cut. She came out as transgender and was fired the following few days later for that exact reason. Yeah. And the government in the Trump administration, as part of this, is trying to argue that that is legal and fine and probably good. Well, the Trump administration has made in no uncertain terms very clear not only their war on the overall umbrella of the gay community, as they define it, but specifically our transgendered brothers and sisters. And we ask ourselves a lot of questions about why. Why are people doing this? What is going on behind this thought process? And you brought up a good point. We need to change our frame of reference. Well, my thought on this is to stop asking why, because we'll never understand the why somebody can be in that place. We have to understand how. How do we understand where they're coming from? How do we approach them? How do we talk to them? How do we stay engaged? How do we stay really in touch with everything that's going on? How do we not disengage? Because sometimes it can be overwhelming. But we have to stay attuned to what's going on so that we can be a part of the change. As they say, you know, you have to be the change if you want change to occur. And since this is how we can do it, it's the how. So keep your sense of curiosity because we can get bogged down in the why part of it. It's tied to a lot of emotion, I believe. And emotion is is important. It's something we're not going to get rid of and we shouldn't get rid of. But it's also we need to understand how do we fight these things. And I think visibility is a key component in fighting this. Folks, I cannot understate the enormity of this case. And people wonder what we can do about it. Right now, I don't think there's a ton that we can do except pay attention, be vocal, and be loud. And if you're part of the cisgender heterosexual community... This week might be tough for a lot of your friends in the LGBTQI community. Check on them. Yeah, please do check on them and find out. Read the story. This is from the New York Times, September 23rd, uh, by the reporter Adam Liptak. And so you can, if you go online, you can look that up on the New York Times and find out the stories. It's chock full of information that really helps you key in on what exactly they're going to be arguing on this case. Specifically, Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act about sex discrimination. And as they see it, some who really want to be really text-centric and very, let's say, conservative in terms of their approach on this particular look at Title VII, is they want to define sex just as male-female. The binary. The binary. And say that it's immutable, that it cannot be changed, that basically transgender people don't exist. Well, in that 1964, they weren't considering sexual orientation or gender identification. They were only looking at discrimination regarding to the word sex, meaning between a man and a woman. Now, that is exactly what the conservative viewpoint is arguing, is that that's exactly what it should be, and it should never change, and that we should always only consider sex as binary man, woman, and because they didn't mean anything else by that, it shouldn't expand that the law shouldn't change with our understanding of the word sex. But how can you not tie 
my gender identification or my sexual orientation to my sex. Exactly. It's intrinsically tied to my sex. Just because they weren't thinking about it or it wasn't on the radar, it wasn't part of discussions in 1964, doesn't mean it didn't exist. Right. And you can't be a gay man without being a man. Hello. I'm (laughs) proof of that. Right. And one thing I wonder uh, that came up to me, it really stuck out with regards to how this may affect us in a positive way or negative way, whether we have a chance to be really hopeful going into this, speaking of emotions, that these new cases concern statutory interpretations, not constitutional law. You know, and I'm trying to think, you know, I graduated in, in my top 10 of my class and all this and that. But I'm like, statutory? What's, I got to look this up, right? So statutory means required, permitted, or required by statute, by law. Okay, so this means they have to interpret the law, the meaning of the law. And since we have a more conservative-leaning court right now, and they have to think about interpretation of law rather than point-blank constitutional law, this is what it states, That gets me concerned. That's why I think we have to really keep our fingers to the pulse of what's going on here as a burgeoning community and really support each other. And thank you for reaching out to our allies to be a part of this conversation as well. I think it's important to involve all people who are going to be on our side with this because firing somebody just for who they are, I don't understand how that could be interpreted as the right thing to do. And yet, Again, we go back to trying to understand why. I, I'm not going to understand why. I just won't get it. We will beat ourselves over the head till we're unconscious if we keep concerning ourselves about the why. It's like trying to understand illogical behavior or just somebody is making a choice based in hate and fear. When it's coming from that place, the why doesn't matter in that point. So how do we deal with that? How do we affect it? How do we turn the tide? So we have to really keep our sense of curiosity with regards to the how. I can't emphasize that more specifically at this point in time because this news story is not going to be on the radar right now given the, and I hate saying this, the current political climate because a certain somebody in the White House is taking all the oxygen from the room. But we cannot allow for that to happen. We have to claim some of that oxygen back for ourselves. And that's why we're here, Chloe. That's why you and I are here talking and telling our stories from our community, spreading the word so that we can be part of the greater conversation that's going on in our culture. Right. And we talked a little bit about what the repercussions could be. This will also have an effect on mental health across the country for LGBTQI youth especially and adults. But before we move into the next story, I want to give listeners a chance to know that this is going to be a heavy topic. This is about suicide So I just want to let you know that ahead of time so you have a moment to collect yourself. And what we see here is the unfortunate suicide of a young teen who identifies as bisexual because he was outed by a classmate. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, Channing Smith, a 16-year-old young man who uh, was living in Manchester, Tennessee, a small rural town of 10,000 people, had two classmates out him on Instagram and Snapchat with regards to some uh, text messages he had between another young man and himself regarding some intimate details that he was revealing. It was a conversation between two young men regarding intimate behavior between themselves. And this got exposed by some of his classmates. And in the course of an evening, he decided that rather than facing the crucifixion that he would have gotten the next day at school, which I find ironic, that that wording that was used in this article. He chose to pet the dog on its head, say goodnight to his father, and go up to his room, and then take his life. Uh, He shot himself. Nine hours later, his father found him. His father, who didn't have any warning whatsoever that anything was wrong, and in the course of nine hours, everything was changed. Their whole lives were changed. The actions of other people have such an impact and effect on us. Michael Taylor Gray, I am beside myself with this story. I have emotions running high. I want to be careful what I say. But to act so callously towards another human being, to cause them to end their life, is just unbelievable to me that you would do something so mean-spirited. I don't care if you're a teenager. I don't care if people think you should or shouldn't know better. You should. You should. Of course. And, and this is 
One of the dangers of this generation growing up with social media, when I'm on social media, it's just me and an electronic device, me and my smartphone, me and my laptop or my desktop or whatever device I'm using to communicate online via social media. I'm not with another person sitting right in front of me like I am with you right now in this studio. I can look directly into your eyes and I can say things to you like I am right now and I can see the emotion that affects you by what I say. When I'm using social media and it's just me and my smartphone or my not so smartphone in this case, then I don't see that emotion. I don't see the consequence of my actions. And I think that's so important that our youth of today, when it comes to social media, they don't get that sense of consequence that if I post a certain something or reveal a secret that somebody else would rather not have publicly exposed, I'm putting this person in danger. And one of the choices that person might make in reaction to my outing them with their secret, whatever it is, might be taking their own life. Right. And there are more and more cases of this happening, as with Channing Smith. And we talk about consequences. I don't know if these people are going to face consequences for what they did. The district attorney in the area has gone on record in 2018 as saying that he would not prosecute same-sex intimate partner violence. Because he didn't believe in it. Doesn't, well, he doesn't believe in marriage equality. Exactly. That's, so he doesn't think that that falls under domestic abuse. So as of the posting of this story, that had not been decided yet. But So I, I will do my best to give the benefit of the doubt. But I would like to see some justice for this teen, for this family. Well, his brother Joshua has really stepped up. Yes. I mean, as soon as Joshua found out, as soon as his father made, his father made his, the call to his other son about his brother taking his life. He drove three hours immediately to be by his father's side. And he has immediately taken hold of that bar of justice that gets served in, in this case for his brother. It got immediate international coverage with the BBC, with CNN, all over. And, and what's really heartwarming to me is that students at the school, even though initially they created some posters and whatnot doing uh, hashtag tr justice for Channing. They're not letting this go. No, they're not. The, the principal took away their artwork that they created the very next day. They created their own homemade t-shirts mimicking the t-shirt that, that uh, Channing's brother wore uh, on all the uh, interviews he was doing with all the, the news outlets around the world uh, saying hashtag justice for Channing. So they are supporting their fellow classmate in terms of wanting justice for him. But the school district, the school itself, has posted some inferences about if the students need counseling or whatnot services on their Facebook page. But they haven't, as of this moment, as far as we know, haven't actually addressed it directly in terms right. of naming him and what happened to one of their own students. So it's important for us to remember, especially those of us who enjoy some level of acceptance and privilege, that there are a lot of people out there who don't, especially people in certain communities across the country. And we need to keep being visible. We need to keep being vocal. And we need to keep reaching out and let them know that we're here for them. It's amazing to me what people will believe about being in the LGBTQI community and how somebody comes to be part of that community. And we have an interesting story here coming from Russia. Oh, interesting to say the least. We have a man, D. Razumilov, says that an anonymous English language message was sent to a cryptocurrency app on his iPhone in 2017, urging him, don't judge without trying. The message was attached to 69 units of gay coins, an obscure cryptocurrency. And that turned him gay. That's what he's claiming. And he wants to sue Apple, claiming that particular information that was sent to that cryptocurrency uh, attached to gay coins, 69 of them, mind you. That is what did it. That's what turned him gay. And on its face, when I first read that, when we first shared that with one another, I giggled a little internally. I won't lie. Because we know it's and absurd. It's an it's a knowledge thing. We know that that doesn't turn somebody gay. We know that you don't get turned gay. But that goes to a deeper issue. We want to keep this light, but we can't ignore the fact that this goes back to the seventies with Anita Bryant, who herself had a gay son, but became a big proponent against the gay community, saying, "Look, they can't uh, procreate, so they have to recruit." And now, apparently, some people think we've gone high tech. 
Yeah. So now apparently the gay community, quote unquote, is recruiting through uh, gay apps and through cryptocurrency. After we take that moment of, of kind of laughing at the absurdity of it, we have to go, okay, how is this happening? How can we uh, react to this appropriately? And how can we be vocal in terms of countering this kind of reporting? Oh, and the man who is filing this suit is also in a long-term same-sex relationship now. Oh, he's had several. He's had several. You. And now that he's in a long-term one, he says he doesn't like it. But yet he stays. So I don't understand. I think there's a lot of internalized homophobia here. Mm-hmm. And we probably need to start looking at that in ourselves, too. So... I know that there's a lot to cover. I know that this has been a heavy show, but folks, this is going to be a heavy week. And that's something that we need to pay attention to. It's not heavy. It's honest tea. It's time for Who Said That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. She was born in Falmouth, Massachusetts in 1859, the daughter of a congregational pastor. Once grown, she graduated from Wellesley College and then taught there for many years as a professor of English literature. Her yearly salary was $400 with board and washing. She's remembered as the author of the words to America the Beautiful and popularizing Mrs. Santa Claus through her poem, Goody Santa Claus on a Sleigh Ride. Her intimate partnership with Catherine Komen lasted 25 years until Komen's death from breast cancer. She nicknamed Komen Joy of Life. She said, So much of me died with Catherine Komen that I'm sometimes not quite sure whether I'm alive or not. Who said that? It was Catherine Lee Bates who was posthumously inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1970. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hi, I'm Randy Barbado. Hello, I'm Fenton Bailey, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. You weren't even born! Stick to the text. Okay, sorry. Stay on. He said it was gonna. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. National Coming Out Day is October 11th. And about 10 years back, we threw open our doors to the community and were surprised when a young brother and sister stopped by to share a coming out story that left us limp. You have got to be taught. To hate and fear Day after day Year after year It's got to be drummed In your dear little ear You've got to be carefully taught I'm Benjamin, and this is my sister, Jessica Pensner. She's 16 years old. Hi, I'm Jessica. This is my brother, Ben, and he is 13 years old. Okay, Ben, so um, when did you come out? I was 10, 5th grade. It was during a school day, and my teacher, Jude, he was gay, too. He is gay, too. And I, I thought that I liked a couple guys in my class. I was really, really confused because of all the things that was going on. I was 10. (laughs) I don't think I knew very much about that kind of stuff. So then the first time I told anybody was my mom. I went back to my mom's house after school, and then I sort of put my face to the back of my mom on my mom's back. Then I said, Mom, I think I'm gay. And, And she was like, what did you say? And then I said, Mom, I think I'm gay. And then she was like, oh, okay. And that's all she said. And you told me after that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. How is that experience for you? Because I couldn't see inside your head at the time. (laughs) It was really different for me. I've never experienced something like that before. So we were in Mom's room, and I told you, and I said, Jessica, I think I'm gay. And then you said, I think I'm bi. And then when we hugged, we were crying. And then I felt really, really open. I felt like really close to you. And that was like the first time that we felt so close, right? Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Because you were only 10. And that was a bad time for me too. We were both just going through some really weird times. (laughs) I'm really glad you told me then. 
Me too. So how did you feel about it? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, when you told me, I wasn't just crying. I was sobbing. I didn't know how to feel, like, to tell you the truth. I have never been against gays or against anything that they stood for because, you know, I was, still am, bisexual. But you, my brother, being gay was such a trip for me. I wasn't sad that you were gay. I wasn't disappointed or anything. It was just so overwhelming. And then afterwards, I had some time to feel, to think about it and to figure out my feelings, and I was so happy. <laughs> I was one of those girls who would always want the gay best friend <laughs> who we could, you know, hang out with and go talk about girly things, and oh my gosh, that person is my brother. That, it, it's amazing to have you, Ben. <laughs> it really is. And the fact that you're there for me and are always so nice. You're just such a nice person. And I can't believe <laughs> that I have you. I, and that you knew by 10? I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, it was really weird for me, too. What did you talk to Jude about, anyway? Oh, fifth grade teacher. After I told our parents, our dad <laughs> thought of... Um, go talking to Jude because he knew that he was gay because we found out about a paper that they handed out at school. That said that Jude was gay? No, it, that that said that Jude was living with his husband. Oh. Yeah. Which basically says that Jude is gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then Dad said, maybe we should go talk to him and see what his perception of this was. So after school... Dad and Mom went to the school after all the classes were done. We sat down at, at one of the tables, and then I told Jude, and then he was like, okay. And then we talked about how he was gay and how he came out, that he couldn't come out until college. And he thought of me as really brave of going, of coming out at 10 years old. And then we talked about his high school years, how he forced himself to keep his girlfriend because his friends were not gay supporters and how he thought of it. And he said that um, it felt like torture. So he came out in college and he regretted it, that he didn't come out sooner and that he was really happy for me. Are you happy that you came out so soon? Yeah. I don't have to lie as much as I thought I did. Did you know at 10, or did you know earlier than that? I had a pretty okay perception of it at 10. I was still iffy about it. There was this one person that I did tell in middle school. I forgot who he was, but he said that you can't know until you're 17. So I was like, oh, okay. But later on, I got a better understanding of it, and then I said, wow, that was such a lie. But anyway, at 10, I was not sure at all. I was confused, as most people are at that age, if they think of it. Well, now we go to Renaissance Arts Academy, right? Yeah. And we came there right after that whole fifth grade fiasco. Oh, yeah. And our school is very open with that kind of thing. And anyone who is of any sexual orientation does not feel out of place. Did you feel like you had a better understanding of who you were in that school? Yeah. I had a lot of people to talk to. It, I felt so much better at Ren Arts than at VCCS, my middle school, because it was really small, so everybody knew each other, and it was really interesting to talk to people about it because they were really open to the subject. And there are some gay people at our school, just not as many. 
Is it easier to talk about it with your friends at Run Arts? Yes. Yeah, it really is. I actually talk about it as a regular subject now because I've talked to them about it so much. There's this place called the Renaissance Fair, and there's this girl named Taylor, and she's a friend of mine, and she's a lesbian. And me and her talk about it in, in detail. It's really nice to talk to her about that. Are you glad that you have someone like that that you can release what you've been holding in for so long to? <sighs> yes, it really is. It's. I'm so happy that I don't have to bottle it up so much. It makes me feel incredible. It's awesome. It's if you, if you do, it's I've done it before. I've stopped myself from telling people that I was gay. And I have to lie, and I'm not the best liar. I'm I suck at lying. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> then they ask me again, and I have to lie again. Well, you don't have to lie anymore. I know. You don't have to lie to anyone, even if they are against what you are. It doesn't matter. They can't do anything to you. And if you ever need help, I'm here, and Sierra is here, and all our friends are here. So don't worry about it, okay? Okay. So now you're at Renarts, and you're the viola prodigy. <laughs> you are the gay, blonde, blue-eyed viola prodigy. How does that feel to be so wonderful? I like it how everybody knows me, and I don't know them. It's fun. Sometimes I feel kind of famous at that school. It's really, really nice. That's good. You're going to play something, right? Yeah. You want to go do that right now? Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Go for it. I'm going to be playing the second Bach cello suite in D minor.
This is Jessica Pensner. And this is Ben Pensner. And we thank you for listening to us. Thank you. Today, Ben Pensner is all grown up and playing with the Lansing Symphony Orchestra in Michigan. Don't go away. It's time for Who Said That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. Born in Harlem in 1924, he suffered under the rule of his Bible-thumping stepfather, who called him an ugly child. Once grown, he faced the double predicament of being black in racist America and a gay man in an African-American community. With $40 in his pocket, he left America to live in Paris, a move that he said saved his life. For the next 40 years, he wrote plays, novels, and essays. Some challenged the logic of racism, and others defended the naturalness of homosexual desire. He once said, quote, Although coming out is going to make problems, those problems are not so dangerous as the problems of lying to yourself, to your friends, and missing many opportunities. Who said that? It was James Baldwin, a legendary pioneer of 20th century literature. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? Although we revisited a gay Tina report just last week, since this is both Hispanic Heritage and LGBT History Month, we have the very happy excuse to do it again. And we have one that celebrates both. A visit with mariachi or chorus de Los Angeles, the first gay mariachi band. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero. Or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. Today, Carlos Samaniego, the leader of the first and only LGBT mariachi on the planet, well, that we know of, and his star vocalist Natalia Melendez, who can belt out a ranchera with the best of them. Together, a cosmic friendship between a gay man and a transgender woman set against the macho culture of the mariachi. Ooh, that sounds like a juicy novella. First up, Carlos Samaniego. He grew up in El Sereno with early dreams of being an opera singer. He studied in New York and Italy before slipping into a charro outfit to create and head up the appropriately named Mariachi Arcoiris de Los Angeles, the Rainbow Mariachi of Los Angeles. Hey, Carlos. Thanks Hi. for being here. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good, good, good. Well, let's cut to the chase. Why an LGBTQ mariachi? Well, I decided to create this group so that people who identify as LGBTQ within the mariachi world have a safe haven to get together, rehearse, and perform this wonderful music from Mexico. Did you find that... As an LGBT person, it was not terribly comfortable to be in the traditional mariachi? I found that very much the case, yes. Throughout my years playing mariachi, and I've been doing mariachi since I was a teenager, I've encountered good and bad experiences. The bad experiences really have caused me to want to create this group. Basically, I had been the victim of bullying and being made fun of and people talking behind my back or straight to my face, in regards to the fact that I was an out mariachi. Or, you know, mariachi isn't even in the equation, just that I was out and working alongside these people. And I decided that I had enough of that. And I thought that other people may be going through the same thing. And I thought, well, we need somewhere to perform and to do this where we're free of all of that kind of negativity. Actually, you told me that the idea started on a whim while you were at Cal State. Right. So I attended Cal State LA from 1998 until 2002. And around my second year of college, I came out of the closet. I came way out. I flew out. And I wanted to join <laughs> any gay organization that I could find. And I joined a men's group in a, at the Wall of Memorias Project in Highland Park. And I joined the Campus Gay and Lesbian Alliance. And we were planning our Pride events for that year. And at the time, of course, uh, same-sex marriage was not legal. And one of the events for that organization was a mock wedding in protest for same-sex marriages. 
And so in planning these events, we thought, okay, we do have a budget. Let's bring a mariachi for the wedding. And since Cal State LA is a very Latino campus, we thought, well, yep, that makes sense. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute, wouldn't it be great if I could make it an all-gay mariachi? And everyone just went, can you do that? Is that possible? So I actually had to stop for a moment and think, wait, do I know enough gay people in the mariachi world to get this going? And um, I did. I found people and people helped me find other people and people came in from out of town to do the one gig. And that's when Mariachi Arcoiris de Los Angeles began originally in the year 2000. The mariachi continued for a while until it dissipated maybe about eight or nine months later. I was really young, very inexperienced, didn't know how to really lead a mariachi. And then Mariachi Arcoiris came back into existence in 2014. Is there a difference from the traditional mariachi community today as opposed to 2000? Things have changed somewhat. Or do you find you guys are still separate and in your own little world as a LGBTQ group? Unfortunately, the mariachi world really has not accepted us fully. We really don't get invited into the mariachi conferences or the mariachi festivals. However, on the flip side, we do have our special niche. And there are people who hire us because of who we are, what we represent, what we do. And I feel that that's really special because people now hire us where they otherwise would never have considered hiring a mariachi. Lots of pride events. Just so many of these events where they would have never considered showcasing a mariachi. Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. But now that this mariachi exists, there's a reason. Okay, hang out a second because I want to bring on our next guest and then we'll chat together. Natalia Melendez, that's such a pretty name, comes from a family of musicians. So it was no big surprise she was playing the violin by the time she was eight and singing at age 10. And it was always mariachi for her, no opera for her. It was always the mariachi. Actually, for him, because Natalia was born Julio. Hola, Natalia. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I wish they could see how pretty you are, but it's radio. Ah, well, thank you. <laughs> Your story is so fascinating. Where did it begin? Where did it begin? So you literally grew up in children's mariachis as a kid. Yeah, I grew up playing violin at the age of eight years old. The first time I seen mariachi, I just gravitated to it. And the violinist that was playing by the name of Laura Sobrino, uh -huh. she was the one that I was mesmerized by. And it was actually at a family party in my home. Uh -huh. And I was just, something clicked within me. And my uncle was in the mariachi. He was a guitarron player. And after that gig, I was literally, you could see a home video of me off to the side with my grandparents and everybody. And yeah. I'm just there for the whole time the group plays. Wow. That was when something triggered in me and I wanted to play violin like that lady. One moment can change your whole life, right? That's exactly right. There are actually mariachi conferences all over the Southwest where they train young children. And I love that, that the tradition continues. They like their Beyonce, they like their Café Tacuba, but they love their mariachi as well. Right. It's so important to keep that tradition going. Yeah, I believe so. When I was young, I started in the Heritage Society, which was with Jose Hernandez. His, yeah. um, Sol de Mexico. With Sol de Mexico, right. And um, Laura was doing the the classes there. And then we had Curita Iriberto Molina from Mariachi Vargas that was a vocal mm. instructor. And we literally had a schedule when we were young, if we were in Juvenil Sol de Mexico, mm. we had to do vocal lessons with Curita. And then we would do our music learning with Laura. Oh. And that's what I started when I was young. And it paid off. You're still young, by the way. I think uh, so, too. Thank you. No, Carlos mentioned that one of the reasons he formed Arcoiris was to create a safe space for LGBTQ out musicians. But I would suspect that the macho mentality of that world would have been especially difficult for the young Julio. Oh, it was extremely difficult for me. I was actually living in a bubble for so many years, dealing with identity issues, dealing with looking like a young male and not feeling like a male and wanting to be a part of a mariachi world and in a group. And it was very, very difficult. I learned very young at an early age what it was all about to be closeted and not to be accepted as a gay male back then at a very young age. I knew that I couldn't be out. It just wasn't accepted. Well, you were actually double closeted. 
I was. But you know what? I'm a little rebel. So through time, I kind of didn't care what people were going to say. So then I started tweezing my eyebrows. I was pretty out there. You know, I was like, I, I got to be me. But being me, I really was not being me because I was being a gay boy, young man. Yeah, yeah. But I'm a transgender female. So, you know, when I was growing up with the girls that I grew up with, like um, Nidia Rojas and, and Lucero and, and mm-hmm. a lot of these big people that are amazing musicians now, I wanted to be them. Yeah, We would be in lessons together and I'm like, why can I look like them? Why can't I sing like them? I want to be a badass musician like them. You know, so it was kind of like, wow, I'm living as Julio, but I'm not happy. I'm not really who I am. But you knew who you were. And I surely just the, did. the world had to be ready for it and you just punched your way through. I sure did. It's very brave. I mean, that's very brave. But there was a lot of repercussions because of it, you know. I'm sure. There was a lot. But look at you now. Look at you now. Yes. Was there a actual moment when you decided to make the full transition or was it just cumulative or was there one day you said, all right, enough already? Yeah, enough was enough. I was in my late 20s and I just had enough. I lived a, uh, because of my, not to veer away from what we were discussing, but I'm a recovering addict. That was due to me being a closeted transgender woman. You know, I was fighting with identity issues. So I clinged on to a drug, but I had enough. I lived a crazy life. I was tired. I didn't want to live another day and walk this earth not being sober and not living in my true authentic self. I had enough to about 27. And I just got my life, so to speak, excuse my language, by the balls. And I did what I had to do. And I left L.A. I actually put myself in a Christian home for one year away from family, away from friends, no communication with anybody. I said, Lord Jesus, I surrender myself to you, whether I am to be a male and to live with a woman, I'm here. I'm going to do everything that I have to do to do that. I was doing internal cleaning inside Mm -hmm. my soul. And I said, or you let me know that the woman that I truly feel I am inside is okay and that I can get over this addiction so that when I do come out to the real world, I can be a productive citizen in life. And I could be a happy person internally. And, you know, that was the year that changed my life. So I come back home to Los Angeles and I start looking for work besides mariachi. And things just started working. I was just going full force. It's like you put a full tank of gas in a car and you go. That's what I did. When I came back to L.A., I was loaded and I went. I'm speechless for a minute here. That's a fantastic. You've got to write your book. Come back, Carlos. How are you? I'm good, thanks. <laughs> I know that you also told me that Natalia was hugely helpful to you when you came out. You came out young, but she's the one that dragged you out, kicking and screaming. I tried to kick him out. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yes, I met Natalia when she was still Julio back in 1997, approximately. And we were in this youth group, and... I was clearly not out at that time. And Julio, or Jay, what we used to call him, he definitely was. And so I really respected Jay as Mm -hmm. a musician Mm -hmm. because Natalia is such an amazing musician. And I was just getting started. I had up to that point really had only played guitarron and I was switching to violin. So I really looked up to Natalia for that guidance. And I just really admired Jay's playing. And I really remember going over to his house to practice. And he was always very welcoming. And the same person that Natalia is were now. You pretty much, you guys pretty much the same age? We're, yeah. we're the same age. We're okay. only a few months apart. Okay. And so he helped me a great deal to grow as a musician. Mm-hmm. And then as it turns out, also just as a person. Because the more I saw him being himself, so to speak, I thought later to myself, that's okay for me too. It gave you strength. Yeah, and it helped me to find out who I am and that it's okay. And Jay was always very much there for me and just my, you know, my sibling. It's fascinating because in the first incarnation of Arcogiris, you were with Julio. And now in this current version, you're with Natalia. Correct. And yes. how was that different for each of you? She has breasts. Yeah, so this is what I love about Natalia. She's the same person that I met when we were teenagers. The fact that she's changed the way she looks, everything else is exactly the same. same. And so 
Thank God for that because she's just such an amazing person and, and I'm just so grateful. Oh, I love you, brother. I love you too. <laughs> Doesn't anybody love me? <laughs> we love, love you, you too, Dan. Dan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so your dream is to perform at one of the big mariachi concert events like the one at the Hollywood Bowl and to record your first album, which I know was in the works, and to play in Mexico, right? Yes, absolutely. We need to be displayed, so to speak. Our talents are here and we want to be made known that we exist, not only so that we can perform and show how well we play, but also because we serve, as it turns out, as an example to our community. And oh, I've sure. been told this. People have been messaging me and Natalia saying, hey, I can't believe you exist. I wish something like that existed here where I'm from. Or, you know, some guy in some Pueblo in Mexico has said, because of you, I decided to come out to my family, and I'm a mariachi too, where I play and live. And so it, all of these things are very powerful. It's amazing to perform for our community, and that's who we're here for. But if we can be seen also on a bigger platform for a bigger, broader audience, then we're serving our community more that way. That's why we want to do that. And performing in Mexico is just a dream because this is where the music's from. Mexico is the home of mariachi. And so for us to go and show an LGBTQ mariachi. A U.S. one. Yes. A Chicano one. Exactly. To go and show them that we can perform the music just as well as anyone else can from Mexico. And we're queer. I think that's very powerful. And I think they would appreciate it as well. And Mexico City has a huge gay pride event. I mean, mm -hmm. It's a week long or something. Yeah. Just remember, dreams do come true. You yes. just got to keep dreaming. You're listening to The Gaytino Report with Dan Guerrero. I'm talking with Carlos Ameniego and Natalia Melendez from the Mariachi Arcoiris de Los Angeles. Thank you, Carlos and Natalia, for being here. Thank you for having us. Hasta pronto. See you all later. They had to keep their hands off girls in order to keep the Army's hands off them. That's the storyline of the darndest, gayest, funniest fairy tale you've ever seen on the motion picture screen. That's the gay deceivers in absolutely divine color. The Gay Deceivers stars Kevin Coughlin, Larry Casey, and Brooke Bundy and introduces the sensational find of the year, Michael Greer. Now, you see, the Gay Deceivers is all about... what. Well, we can't exactly tell you the storyline because it's not for mom and dad and the apple pie crowd. But for you groovy cats, it's out of sight. So, is he or isn't he? Only his draft board and his girlfriend know for sure. You won't want to miss the comedy show of many a year, The Gay Deceivers. What kind of a movie is this? Well, we still have a couple minutes. Enough time for a last word. Tonight, Armistad Maupin reading an excerpt from his 2000 Romana Clef, The Night Listener. I'm a fabulist by trade, so be forewarned. I've spent years looting my life for fiction. Like a magpie, I save the shiny stuff and discard the rest. It's of no use to me if it doesn't serve the geometry of the story. This makes me less than reliable when it comes to the facts. Ask Jess Carmody, who lived with me for ten years and observed this affliction firsthand. He even had a name for it, the Jeweled Elephant Syndrome, after a story I once told him about an old friend from college. My friend, whose name was Boyd, joined the Peace Corps in the late 60s. He was sent to a village in India where he fell in love with a local girl and eventually proposed to her. But Boyd's blue-blooded parents back in South Carolina were so aghast at the prospect of dusky grandchildren that they refused to attend the wedding in New Delhi. So Boyd sent them photographs. The bride turned out to be an aristocrat of the highest caste, better bred by far than any member of Boyd's family. The couple had been wed in regal splendor, perched atop a pair of jeweled elephants. Boyd's parents, imprisoned in their middle-class snobbery, had managed to miss the social event of a lifetime. I had told that story so often that Jess knew it by heart. So when Boyd came to town on business and met Jess for the first time, Jess was sure he had the perfect opener. Well, he said brightly, Gabriel tells me you got married on an elephant. Boyd just blinked at him in confusion. I could already feel myself reddening. 
You weren't? No, Boyd said with an uncomfortable laugh. We were married in a Presbyterian church. Jess said nothing, but he gave me a heavy-lidded stare whose meaning I had long before learned to decipher. You were never to be trusted with the facts. In my defense, the essence of the story had been true. Boyd had indeed married an Indian girl he had met in the Peace Corps, and she had proved to be quite rich. And Boyd's parents, who were in fact exceptionally stuffy, had always regretted that they'd missed the wedding. I don't know what to say about those elephants, except that I believed in them utterly. They certainly never felt like a lie, more like a kind of shorthand for a larger, less satisfying truth. Most stories have holes in them that cry out for jeweled elephants. And my instinct, alas, is to supply them. Ladies and gentlemen, and everybody who identifies in between, as we reach the end of tonight's journey, please make sure your seat backs and tray tables are in their full upright position, your seatbelt is securely fastened, and all carry-on baggage is stowed underneath the seat in front of you or placed in a progressive stance in the overhead bins. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending time with us. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our coordinating producer and director of distribution, and most importantly, Sparkle, Bosh Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. We would love to have you. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos and IMRU radio podcast on YouTube. Good, Good night. night.